Hey, it's good to be together. After after a non-snow Sunday and uh, a COVID Sunday for me, it's good to see you again and be uh, able to sing together. Some great uh, songs there this morning. So we're back to Ruth. We started at the beginning of January, and uh, we want to pick that up again. Uh, And I'm sorry for you today, because instead of having one week to marinate on this sermon, I've had three. Uh, So uh, there you go. Let's, uh, Let's catch up to where we've been in our introduction number of things that stood out as I reflected back. Uh, One is that the book of Ruth is a story about how God works in and through suffering to accomplish his purpose and plans. And, uh, of course, all of those themes in the Old Testament come together in Jesus, right? Where God, through suffering, uh, accomplishes his greatest purpose in the world to bring redemption uh, to all of creation. So we're seeing that uh, in Ruth. Some have called the the story of Ruth and Naomi in particular as the the story of the female Job. Secondly, (coughs) we've seen that this is a book about love acting in extraordinary ways. And it's that Hebrew word, uh, that word hesed, and uh, it occurs a number of times in this book, and, and certainly the characters uh, portray hesed in remarkable ways, uh, both Boaz and even more so uh, the person who I think is the main character in the story, and that is Ruth the, the Moabite. Uh, And, of course, God himself acts in this way. Uh, Hesed is uh, the word that uh, scholars wrestle with to get a good translation. That's why when it shows up in Old Testament versions, it gets translated a lot of different ways, like loving kindness and mercy and covenant faithfulness and simply love. Uh, I... uh, the Sunday we did not meet because of the uh, non-snow event, uh, I put you on to that link to the interview with Michael Card, the musician who wrote a book about it. You may, re- If you listen to that, you re- remember his definition of hesed is something like this. Hesed occurs when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. And that is reflected to some extent in the characters in the story of Ruth, uh, and ultimately, and more importantly, it's reflected in the character of God. And I suggested you think about whether there's a New Testament word that corresponds to that idea, and uh, I'll I'll give that away. It seems to me that the the New Testament word grace uh, is very close to that sense, right? Grace is God's goodness coming to those of us who don't deserve it, but we receive it uh, anyway because of the character of God. And then thirdly, 
We saw that Ruth is a story about how God values people that the world does not value. Uh, we've got the story of uh, a couple of women who are uh, widows and who do not have, apparently, the ability to bear children anymore. And, uh, and in the ancient world, that is uh, about as low as you can get on the social ladder because it's a man's world. And value is coordinated with how you can connect and advance the purposes of the men in the world. So if you're without a husband, and if you're not able to bear sons, you're a high-risk person. And that's what we encounter in the book of Ruth. I've uh, run into uh, two books by Carolyn Custis James. And uh, one is particularly powerful. It's uh, Finding God in the Margins. And it's, it's about the book of Ruth. <clears throat> Here's her comment on this. The book of Ruth raises the subject of the value of a woman. What is a woman worth? Well, the answer of the ancient world, count her sons. According to that cultural scorecard, Naomi is a zero because she's lost her sons and she has no possibility of bearing more. So is her barren daughter-in-law, Ruth. But is that how God sees them? Is a woman's value truly derived from others? Or is it grounded in something that can never change? Death and childlessness severed widows from anything that gave them meaning or value. When the last man in the family died they both plummeted to the bottom of the social ladder, whether they lived in Moab or Israel, because that's the ancient cultural context. All right, so that's a bit of what we've seen. I want to think uh, about love today, in part about, uh, about hesed love which, uh, if we take the words of uh, the Song of Solomon, love is stronger than death, the kind of love the Bible encourages from us. Well, let's read the first chapter again so we have the story fresh in our minds. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. That's, that's key to this story right here, that phrase, return home. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. May he show you hesed, as you have shown hesed to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. means pleasant, right? Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. All right, so let's uh, pick up uh, a few themes from the story here. Let's think about this idea of return. Uh, You notice verse 22. So Naomi returned. Verse 6, she heads up the road to Bethlehem to return. Verse 22, she returns. It's, It's like a set of verbal bookends that holds this part of the story together. 
So we need to think about a return. And it's a humbling return. Expressed very well in Naomi's statement to the women who greet her. I went away full, but I've come back empty. And certainly, the focus there has got to be on what happened to the men in her life. She went away full with a husband and with two sons, the two sons in particular being her her pension and her social security. That's where it is. But that's now gone, and she's empty. A humbling return. Now, uh, the way these stories work in the Bible, I'm sure you've you've noticed this if you've spent any time, but, but often when things are described in these stories, as you think about them, you realize they're working on more than one level. They're often working on a literal level, but... But sometimes there's also a spiritual or figurative level that comes in. And I think that's what's going on here. <clears throat> I think we have a movement. <clears throat> it's the remnants of my uh, little exposure. Uh, I think we've got a movement here between physical and spiritual realities. All right? And, and the reason I think that is that this word return in Hebrew, it's the word shuv, we've looked at a little bit on previous occasions. It, it means, well, it means return. A reversal of course. Going back to where you were. And that can be a, a physical return. It's obviously that for Naomi. She left Bethlehem, she's coming back. But but we wonder if there's not another dimension to this as well. And uh, a number of things suggest that. One is the, the role of famine in this story. We're told that right in the beginning. There's a famine in the land, and so... Elimelech and, and his family decide they're going to go to, to Moab. Now, there's a number of themes interwoven there. Uh, one is that this is placed in the time of the judges. The judges were a turbulent period after the death of Joshua, Moses' lieutenant. And Joshua was able to keep the Israelites focused on what God wanted them to do. But when he died, they lost focus. And they found themselves doing exactly what Moses warned them against, which was they started getting too friendly with the Canaanite peoples that remained in the Promised Land. And... uh, Moses had said, don't do that, because you start going after God, other gods, and, and Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt and led you through the wilderness and gave you this land, he will bring judgment on you for your unfaithfulness. 
So Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That's the judgment. So what you find in the book of Judges then is is cycles of invasion from the outside, but also drought and famine until God's people repent. So it doesn't say that the famine that came on Bethlehem in Naomi's day was connected with the disobedience of the people, but you don't have to think too far to realize that there's a connection, huh? So so what is going on in the story? Well, God brings his discipline on his people living in Bethlehem. And one of the families says, I'm out of here. So, So the suggestion, while it's not directly said to us or told to us, the suggestion we can easily pick up is that there is a certain unwillingness on the part of this family, at least, to knuckle down under the discipline of God and to trust him and to seek his face. And then there's other things. If you were an Israelite and you're listening to this story being told to you, there's other associations you'd make from earlier parts of the story. This whole thing of, you know, of facing famine and, and going elsewhere, that's happened before. <laughs> How about Father Abraham, who leaves Babylon, travels to the promised land, and when he gets there, there's a famine, and what does he do? He goes to Egypt. How does that turn out? Not real well. And then two generations later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who's also called Israel. There's another famine in the land, in the promised land. And what does Jacob do? He takes his family to Egypt. How does that turn out? Well, it looks like it's going to turn out great initially. It does for a period of time, but then it turns into 400 years of slavery. So there's a tradition of people leaving the promised land in difficult times, and it often doesn't work out for them. So, in this discussion of returning then, there there is a spiritual undertone here, isn't there? Of somebody who needs to get back to where God is at work. And they turn back. And in turning back, <clears throat> the return is physical, but it's also spiritual. The return is, in effect, seeking the Lord. We're told that Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem. And things were better. And she looks at her own situation, 
maybe a little bit like the prodigal son that Jesus talked about who came to his senses and said, you know, I need to get home. And that's what she does. <clears throat> and maybe you need to get home. All right, that's what a story like this says to all of us. Are we headed in the right direction? Because all of us need return. Life is about a process of returning to the Father's house. It's about, uh, it's that word repentance. This word return often gets re- translated as repentance in the Old Testament. So I think what we see in Naomi is <clears throat> a certain repentance, and like us, our repentance is often not smooth. It's, it's often grudging, isn't it? It's like, it's like we're getting dragged and our feet are dug in and we're not happy about it. Because repentance is nobody's fun time. And that's the case with Naomi. It's not fun. Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because this is what God has done to me. You can hear that, right? So she's not, she's going to the right place. But she's not yet in a good place. Spiritually. A humbling return. All right, well, let's, let's then also think about hesed a little bit further. Hesed love, this, <clears throat> this uh, extraordinary quality that is found in God and that is supposed to be found in, in us. That's... That's the vision that's put before us. The kind of people we're supposed to be are people marked <clears throat> by Hesed. And in this story, uh, kind of indirectly, we, we come to understand that God is the God of Hesed because he is doing things here that the human players don't, don't get, they don't understand. But, but in terms of seeing what Hesed looks like, it's particularly something we see in the human characters, and we see it more than any other place in the life of Ruth the Moabite. Naomi sets off <clears throat> planning to make this journey on her own. Her daughters, daughters-in-law start the journey with her, But she's apparently got a plan already. Why she waits until they're on the road, scholars aren't sure. But she's a strong woman, and she's obviously been thinking about this. So they start off on the road, and Naomi says, uh, Daughters, you need to go back. Uh, And we know she's been thinking about this because she's got the... uh, the unanswerable argument, right? Uh, This is foolish for you to go with me Uh, because Naomi and they understand that it's a world of men and if you're not connected with men, you are highly at risk. And she says, you know, my, my time has passed. If I were to marry today, 
I couldn't have children. And even if you suppose that somehow, miraculously, I could have a husband tonight and we could conceive sons tonight who would be born, could you wait for them? Naomi's time for bearing children is past. By the time sons would be grown, the childbearing years for her daughters-in-law would be past as well. So this is a hopeless situation, says Naomi. You need to go back. Stay in your land, in your culture, with your family connections, and hopefully you'll find another husband before it's too late for you. So go back. Thank you for your kindness, but go back. And there is, I think you could argue, an element of, of hesed love here on the part of Naomi. She's, she's cutting them loose for their good, not for hers. And to Orpah, that makes sense. I mean, that's the reasonable thing, right? So Orpah turns back. Ruth refuses to do so. And you get that powerful, beautiful statement about love. You know, don't tell me anymore. Let's have an end of this conversation. I'm not leaving. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. And where you die, that's where I'm going to die. Now this is an extraordinary choice, isn't it? This is love beyond the call. That's uh, Michael Card's idea of hesed, right? It's, it's when I receive uh, what I can't rightfully expect to receive. Naomi doesn't expect to receive this kind of love. But Ruth gives it. Ruth's choice is now to become an immigrant. And in doing so, she effectively resigns all hope for the future. From a human perspective, that's what she's doing. She resigns all hope. Why? Well, she's going to be an outsider. Huh? Naomi's been the outsider. Naomi's going home. Ruth now will become the outsider. And so she will move about as far to the bottom of the social scale as you can get. She's already a woman, so she's at risk, right? She's a woman without connections to a man. In going to Israel, she is very unlikely to find a husband because she's an outsider. She's an alien. Remember in the Old Testament that, <clears throat> that group of people that were told the Lord loves and that he commands us to care for? Who are they? It's the widows, <laughs> uh, the poor, the, uh, the alien, the foreigner, and I'm missing one. Orphans, yes. Okay, thanks. And when you talk through the mask like that, it's hard for me to get it. Uh, yeah, so notice Ruth, Ruth ticks 
three of the four categories. And she's choosing that. From a human perspective, hope is gone. So, so here's an interesting thing to think about in terms of hesed, right? Hesed is costly. Think of the cost that she is incurring in what she is doing here. Hesed means death to self-interest. I mean, if if Ruth is thinking about herself at all and what will benefit her, she is almost certainly not going to make this choice. But she's not thinking about herself. She's thinking about Naomi. Costly love. Death to self-interest. In his uh, fine uh, commentary on Ruth, uh, uh, Paul Miller, who lives over here near me in Blooming Glen, uh, great little commentary. Uh, Paul talks a lot about hesed and about the nature of love. It makes the interesting comment that, that from a biblical standpoint, in this world, Death is always the center of love. That's worth thinking about, huh? Death is the center of love because as I learn to love, that will always have a cost. It will mean death to my self-interest. And of course, that fits with the overall biblical story, doesn't it? Because ultimately, Hesed love is rooted in the love of God himself, and the love of God himself is the love which has death as its center. Death in this world, which leads the God of life to the cross. And in this Old Testament story, we have a picture of that kind of love from this woman, this outsider, who chooses the interest of someone else over her own self-interest. Which leads us to think a little bit more about, uh, about Ruth. Because I think she is the central character of this book. Ruth is a woman of determined faith. Naomi's a strong character, I think. You know, if you, if you read between the lines of Naomi, she's a strong, <clears throat> purposeful woman. But in her daughter-in-law, Ruth, she has met her match. So we're told when Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And where you die, I'm going to die. She says that, and that shuts Ruth's mouth. Off they go together. She's a determined woman, 
<clears throat> and she's determined not just because she's strong, but she is determined in her faith. May Yahweh, the God of Israel, may he deal with me ever so severely if I do not keep my promise to you. That's what she says. So, somewhere along the way, it's clear that Ruth the Moabite has experienced a deep, powerful, genuine conversion to faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> She's converted from the, the worship and service of Chemosh, the national God of the Moabites, to following Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, there are some people who talk as if that conversion took place right there on the road when she makes this decision to go with, uh, with Naomi. Uh, I think that's highly unlikely. Partly because I think most conversions don't work that way. Most conversions aren't momentary, they're a process. Now, how she came to shift her faith to Yahweh, we're not told, but we could surmise. We could surmise that as she married Malan and came into the circle of this Israelite family, that she began to see some things that were different from her experience in Moab and the worship of Chemosh. And uh, what that may be, to what extent Naomi was instrumental in teaching her or Elimelech, you know, that's all part of the story we're not told. But that something like that happened is clearly the case. She has been converted. She was going one direction, now she's going in another. She was following other gods, now she follows the one living and true God. Biblical faith is, is always something like that. You, you, you always make this change. That's, that's the necessary thing. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said to the, the Jewish ruler Nicodemus that that you have to be born again. That's a way of talking about conversion, right? We, we could say that's true of what happened to Ruth. She was born again. She experienced a, a deep personal change. And notice, it's not just an intellectual change. That's, that's the way sometimes people have thought about conversion. It's it's something that happens between your ears. It's a change of your opinions and so forth, and certainly that is part of conversion, but it goes much deeper than that. It is a transformation of the person, the personality. We become different in a whole variety of ways because Yahweh is now our God. And our God moves powerfully in our lives when we open ourselves to him and change comes about. And so there's, there's transformation that has been taking place in 
Ruth's life, and we see the evidence of it here as she commits to going home with Naomi. And it's deep change. Faithfulness unto death. Where you die, I will die. And then she she takes an oath, a religious oath. She calls God as her witness to what she has committed to do. Even to the point of saying, I invite the judgment of God upon me if I do not keep my word. This is remarkable. May God deal with me. It seems like an incomplete oath, so maybe there was you know, physical expression that went with it. May God do to me if I fail to keep my promise to you. So here is a woman of deep, powerful, determined faith. And as I thought about this, uh, I, I came to what so far is maybe the most powerful insight that I've had in, in studying this little book. And I want to share it with you as we wrap it up here. <clears throat> I believe it's the case that there are only three people in the Old Testament who convert from the outside and become followers of Yahweh. One of them is the Syrian general Naaman, who gets leprosy, remember, and uh, an Israelite slave girl says, you know, if my master would go to the prophet in Israel, he could get cured. And so they decide to do it, and Elisha says, go bathe seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. And he does that. And, and that is a transformative moment. He said, I, from here on, I just serve Yahweh. Now, there is a conversion which seems virtually instantaneous, right? They're rare. So there's three of these people. One of them is Naaman, and we, he disappears from the story after that. We don't, we don't know anything about him. The two other people are both women. Not only are they both women, they're both outsiders. And I don't just mean that, you know, they're they're Canaanite or they're foreign. They're outsiders in the sense that they're at the bottom of the social ladder. They are the zeros of the ancient world. In fact, in many respects, they would be zeros in every age. We've talked about Ruth the Moabite woman, but think about the other one, Rahab. Rahab is the prostitute from the city of Jericho who has been following the stories about the Israelites, how they were delivered by Yahweh out of their enslavement and they came through the Red Sea and then they were preserved and guided 
through the wilderness experience. And now more recently, they've come up the west or the east side of the Dead Sea, and they've taken on uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and they've squashed him. And then they encountered Og, king of Bashan, and they took care of him. And now they've turned and they're encamped on the plains just across the Jordan from the city of Jericho. And she knows. She is thoroughly convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God who will bring judgment upon Jericho. So somehow she encounters the spies who come into the city and she hides and protects them in exchange for her life and the life of her family. She does that in faith. She's a woman of faith. Now here's the, the fascinating thing about this story. These women, one the prostitute, the other the widow who's the outsider and is now a foreigner, she's got no hope, right? And a Canaanite prostitute has no hope. Both of them end up marrying Israelites. Not only that... They both marry into the same clan. The clan of Elimelech. Which is the clan of Ephrath, right? They do it one generation apart. So Rahab marries an Ephrathite named Solomon. And they have a son named Boaz. And we're going to hear about him in the next chapter. So Boaz grows up with a mother who's a Canaanite prostitute. Or was. And Boaz will later meet another foreigner a Moabite widow who apparently can't have children. So what's her value? And Boaz will marry her. And and then the part of the story that these people, these characters we're talking about, that they never know about. The part of the story that makes this so important to later Israelites is they tell it over and over again. Every Pentecost, they would tell this story. What makes it so powerful is that Rahab the prostitute ends up being the great, great grandmother of Israel's greatest king. And that means that Ruth 
is the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David. So think about this. David's DNA he gets in part from two outsiders. And you wonder, don't you? At least I do. Uh, David was a man of passionate, determined faith. Like his great-grandmother. Passionate, determined faith. Half of the Psalms come from David. Half of the 150. To what extent is that inheritance through Rahab and through Ruth, the foreigner outsider, the former worshiper of Chemosh, to what extent is David's sensitivity to God, the man after God's own heart, is that rooted back in these two women who are at the bottom of the social ladder that virtually nobody cares about except God? These two women have value in God's purposes. Because, of course, the story goes even further, doesn't it? And and the DNA of King David, which comes partly from Ruth the Moabite and Rahab the prostitute, that DNA is still at work in David's greater son, the Messiah. And that's why both of those women show up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. This is quite remarkable, friends. So, let's finish just with these questions. Is my faith a life-changing commitment to King Jesus? Is that the nature of my faith? Deep, real, powerful. And if we think about Hesed love, here's a question. Has my love for the Lord or for others, has it cost me anything? Is there a sense in which I have experienced death in my love for others? Well, let's pray, and then I think we're going to sing a song. Lord, we are amazed at the remarkable ways that you work in the lives of people that 
that the world may dismiss as inconsequential, unimportant, even trash. But Lord, you have made all human beings in your image and they have value to you. We thank you for the reminders of this story that you value even marginalized people. And Lord, we take encouragement that you value our lives and, and you want to do things in and through us that we may never live to see the consequences of. But you have good things in store, and we want to open our lives more fully to what you're doing. Thanks for, thanks for this word, this wonderful story of your guiding care. And uh, may we be encouraged today. May we commit again to living out your story in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.